bosses. We've all had bad bosses, you know. Maybe not as bad as this one. The Human Resources Department requires that I be available once a month to discuss workplace disputes with my employees. <laughs> the rules do not specify whether or not I'm allowed to listen to Willie Nelson on my headphones. There you go. That's Ron Swanson from the hit television show Parks and Recreation. Obviously a satirical look at what would be a bad boss for that city of Pawnee department. But what are some of the worst mistakes bosses can make? Maybe you are a leader at work or you work for someone who could use some tweaking in the way that they kind of interact with you and your fellow employees. Well, Dr. Jane Gardner is joining me this afternoon to kind of dig into this. Dr. Gardner is a performance coach and a business strategist. Dr. Gardner, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And yes, some of the people I know, the bosses need a bit of tweaking. So yes, I get what you're saying. <laughs> you know, sometimes bosses have the best of intentions, but it just doesn't yes. come across correctly. So, so Jane, oh, so Jane, what are some, what are some good recommendations, like things to not do if you're a boss? What's a, like you know three or four things that they can kind of not do on a regular basis? Oh, I think that's a great question. Don't give empty compliments. Ah. You know, we always think praise is good, but don't say, oh, you did a good job. What I'd like to hear you say is specifically something like that presentation you gave on the financial gave us insight into how we could hold our cost. You see, that's very different. Yes. Oh, good job. You get that? Does that make sense? Yes, I totally get it. I totally get it. The more specific you are, A, makes it look like you're you're listening or, and paying attention, mm -hmm. and B, it lets the worker, you know, know what you're valuing about what they're doing, right? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, I've got a whole pocket full of these, but one of the other things is to listen and to ask your employees for their opinion. Ah. And I have a little adage that I, I use with bosses. I'll say, ask them for their say, and don't think you have to necessarily give them their way. But <laughs> I like them, that. You know, when you ask them, what do you think about this? You're drawing them into a team approach. You're coming down off of your pedestal as a boss and saying, look, We've got problems right now. Be honest with them. You know, we're losing money. What do you think we could do differently? And all of a sudden, they're important to you. And it's somewhat on their shoulders whether the company succeeds or not. Interesting. Honest communication, right? And asking their, they asking what, asking for their say, but don't necessarily give them their way, right? That's what you were saying? <laughs> That's right. Works for kids, too. Oh, I was going to say, it sounds like something I should be doing for my seven-year-old, Jane, to be honest with you. It really does. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So yeah. we've, got, we've, we've, got two, we've got two under our belt, right? No empty praise. It has to be a specific thing that you're complimenting an employee for his or her work on. And be honest in communicating and asking people for their, you know, for their say on what can be improved and not necessarily giving them their way. What's another thing, Dr. Gardner? Well, you know what, Ted, I got to tell you, you listen well. Oh, good, thanks. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. Good job. Okay. The third one that I have, and this is the most beautiful question. It turns people into cooperative people. So ask your employees, kind of one-on-one, -on -one, maybe when you're talking to them, ask them this question. How can I be a better boss for you? Ooh. 
Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because that flips it into, look, vulnerability. I, I need to know how I could do better. And they feel like, oh, he might really listen to me. He cares about what I think. And, you know, the reason that the great resignation happened, according to the research, is that people didn't feel valued. They didn't feel like they made any difference in the company. Draw them into your team. Get their involvement. And then you have a team that is the most accountable and works together to produce and perform at the highest level. That, that, that sounds brilliant, Dr. Gardner. You know, asking, you know, what can I do to be a better boss for you? That's that's actually brilliant. I guess it speaks to also knowing if you're if you're in that position, uh, the management level position where you have people working under you. It's also, mm-hmm. you know, knowing when to ask for help. Right. You know, and figuring mm-hmm. things out. Well, I think the way the business landscape is changing now is employees do have more power but I think what you might look at, a good metaphor, is the ladder goes up and down. The hierarchical ladder, you know, in these companies, you can go up and you can go down. So a lot of big uh, advisors are saying, let the employees be on the top and reverse it and have the managers be on the bottom asking for how they can help. Interesting. It's fascinating when you kind of look at it and think of it as like a straight up and down ladder because there's people everywhere on every run, right? Yeah, and it's always going up, isn't it? Who's the boss? <laughs> What's going to happen if I do this wrong, you know? It's true. Oh, man. So man. true. So- that- I could talk forever. I could give more and more. Yeah. You know what? I have time for one more, Dr. Gardner. Go for it. Yeah, one more. Cool. Okay. So we used to, in management, when I was coaching people, we had something called exception management. And what it was is it said, never talk about the good. Just look at what did we do wrong and let's try to correct it. Well, guess what? That brings morale really down and our emotions down into the pit. So begin to ask people in a team when they first get together with after maybe they lost a big uh, project or something or a big customer, but keep asking your team at the beginning of every team meeting, have everybody say, what did you do right yesterday? Nice. And, and help people begin to look at themselves with a little more pride because we very rarely, Ted, at least in my life, it's hard to tell myself attaboy because I keep thinking somebody else will tell me. But in reality, we've got to start telling ourselves that so we feel better about who we are. Very good, Dr. Gardner. Great advice this afternoon. I appreciate this. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Ted. All right. Have a great evening. Thanks. Yes, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Jane Gardner, performance coach and business strategist, talking about some of the mistakes that bosses can make. And, you know, we've all worked for them. I like that one. Focusing on things you're doing right. What did you do right yesterday? What did you do well yesterday? What are you proud of what you accomplished yesterday? All great questions, right? Great questions to kind of start with positivity instead of hammering. What went wrong on the show yesterday, Ted? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. A great way to kind of flip things. I like that. Dr. Jane Gardner, of course, for performance coach and business strategist. Sunday, a big, big day. The return of an in-person edition of the Terry Fox Run. Terry Fox ran
and more than halfway across Canada to raise money for cancer research. Every year, millions of people around the world continue the marathon of hope in his name. In his name. That marathon of hope from 1980 riveted in my brain as a 10-year-old watching Terry Fox run, uh, you know, from the East Coast heading toward the West Coast. Of course, we all know he stopped uh, just outside of Thunder Bay, Ontario. Uh, well, the Terry Fox run and the Terry Fox Foundation um, is keeping Terry's legacy alive. And Fred Fox is joining me this afternoon to talk about this. Fred, of course, is Terry Fox's older brother. He also works in supporter relations with the Terry Fox Foundation. Fred Fred, thank you so much for being here. Uh, great to be speaking with you again. Uh, yeah, the last time we chatted, Fred, we were talking about the hike up Mount Terry Fox, you know, just on the BC side of the border near Jasper National Park. How did that event go? Uh, it, was, it was very good. We had a, a very good turnout. Uh, I think there was about 20 of us. I got to the summit. We had great weather. And it was just you know, it's so great to be with people who are uh, passionate about the Terry Fox uh, cause. Yeah, no kidding, right? And, and we're returning to an in-person event um, this weekend uh, uh, across the country. Uh, how does that feel, Fred, that it's going to be actually people running together now in Terry's name? It's going to be amazing. I've been uh, traveling the, the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, 17 days across Canada, and I've been in Ontario, Maritime Provinces, uh, Newfoundland, uh, to Saskatchewan, and, and now here in Alberta, going home tomorrow, and and I can I can feel the excitement. The uh, you know supporters, uh, volunteers are excited about being able to get together. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to participating in Port Coquitlam uh, on the weekend, and uh, you know doing what we've been doing for so many years. Yeah, what year is it now, Fred? I, I've lost track, to be honest with you. Um, this is a, will be the 42nd 22nd. annual Terry Fox run, and you know we're, we've all, also just marked the 42nd uh, anniversary of when Terry ran, and uh, the, the marathon of hoping was forced to stop in, on September 1st. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Long, yeah. I, I remember. I remember 1981. Right was the first Terry Fox uh, Foundation run, right? Yeah, um, just a few months after Terry passed away in yeah. June of uh, 81. The very first one was on uh, September 13th. Okay, and I have to let you know, Fred, um, I, I have four kids, and my youngest is seven years of age, and he came home last night, um, you know, super excited uh, because his school is, of course, going to be running their own version of the Terry Fox run, raining, raising, you know, toonies for Terry, right? You know, where you tape your toonie to the kids' to the kids' agenda so they go back to school. And how does it make you feel, you know, that, that, that there's like a seven-year-old little dude who is super pumped to run in your, your little brother's name? That must be, that must be quite nice you know it it, it, it is amazing and, and, and it's part of the legacy terry's legacy uh, you know new generations of students uh, 42 years later i uh spoke in uh, at uh, 40 or no four uh schools in in lloyd minister the other day four in edmonton um yesterday three schools today here in calgary and uh it's amazing to see those uh young young faces so inspired by what Terry uh, did 42 years ago. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I, I know all of my kids always looked forward to the, you know, the annual Terry Fox run at their school. Um, the return to in-person is going to be amazing. The volunteers are always amazing, Fred. Um, is, is there one thing that stands out for you that kind of really speaks to Terry's uh, legacy? You know, you being his brother, is there one thing that stands out for you? Is it the run every year or is it the fact that you and I continue to talk about it every year? Um, I think it's a, a whole bunch of different things. It's great to be able to, you know, speak with uh, 
you know, you and, and, and others and sharing a little bit about Terry, the school, the school runs, the community runs are awesome. I think what really um, highlights Terry's legacy is where we are today with cancer research and the impact that it's had on lives all these years later. Uh, survival rates are so much better than they were 10, 20, 40 five years ago when Terry was first diagnosed. So, you know, that's, that's what uh, really highlights the uh, Terry's legacy for me is uh, the impact on so many lives. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, how much money has been raised over the years, Fred? $850 million. Wow. And, yeah. And, and again, wow. you know, it's a big number, but uh, more importantly, it's the impact. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. The number helps, though, with the impact for sure, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, and, and we, and you know, it's it, that's funding so many researchers in this country. Canada has some of the best researchers in the world, and and uh, whether it's uh, here, you know, in, in Alberta or uh, in BC or Montreal or Toronto, you know, we we, we fund the best, and uh, that's what Terry wanted. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Okay, so you're running in Port Coquitlam, Fred, uh, which is fantastic. My kids are running here uh, in the city of Calgary. There are events throughout the province of Alberta, right? What's the best place for people to go to, you know, register and to kind of jump on this? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. The best place is to go to our website, terryfox.org, O-R-G, and you can go on the website, register, Create your own fundraising page, get family, friends, and workmates to uh, support what you're doing, and uh, you can find uh, the closest Terry Fox run to you as well. Very good. Thank you, Fred. As always, you're very gracious with your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good chatting with you. You too. Thank you for... uh uh, chatting again. You're welcome. You're welcome. Have a great evening. That's uh, that's that's Fred Fox. That's Terry Fox's older brother. Uh, also works in supporter relations with the Terry Fox Foundation. And uh, again, TerryFox.org is the website. You, you you can you can learn about Terry. You can learn Terry's story. If your kids or grandkids want to learn about him, if they come home from school talking about him, like my little one did last night, uh, there's all kinds of information on there and little vignettes. Uh, there's the Terry Fox Run tab. You can click on the Terry Fox school run and there are other events as i mentioned with fred i chatted with him about six weeks ago for the hike up mount terry fox and mount terry fox is uh well it's just west of jasper national park just on the other side of the border into british columbia that's where mount terry fox is and there was a fantastic hike as fred was talking about as well all kinds of different ways and other events that you can support the terry fox foundation 850 million dollars $850 million raised over the years. This is year number 42 since Terry ran his Marathon of Hope. That is an astronomical number. That is, a, like, that is, a, that is jaw-dropping. You now, you talk about heroes, right? There you go. 1,300 research projects have been funded. 1,300, not 300, 1,300 projects have been funded over the years with that $850 million. That is bonkers to me. That is astronomical. Astronomical. It's always fun to talk about Terry Fox and his legacy, right? That is a true Canadian hero, you know? There aren't that many people you can call that, but there's one right there. And still to this day, and the legacy will live on in my little guy and my three older kids and your kids and your grandkids, right? As we talk about him and remember what he did. Marathon of Hope, 
I remember being riveted to the news every night at 10 years of age in 1980 to see where he was now, winding his way from St. John's, Newfoundland, was heading for Victoria, B.C., but of course, it was cut short just outside of Thunder Bay in Ontario. Focusing our attention toward uh, trees now, uh, both live and dead trees, and why it's important to retain live and dead trees when it comes to storing carbon. Our next guest on the show is going to explain the kind of positive uh, impact of doing all this. Dr. Cole Gross is joining me this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Gross is a postdoctoral researcher out of Yale University's School of the Environment. Dr. Gross, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here and, and talk about live and dead trees. Yeah, live and dead trees. Now, before we dig into that, Dr. Gross, if you don't mind, what's the connection between um, the University of Alberta and um, Yale University School of the Environment here? Did you do your research in our province? or? I did, yes. I, I uh, did my PhD uh, program at the University of Alberta. So I actually just left. I was there for five years. Okay, very and, good. Uh, just just graduated and uh, started a postdoc at Yale, kind of working on the same stuff. Oh, very cool. Okay, so so your three-year study, um, what, what did you find out? Yeah, so what we really wanted to do is figure out how, you know, on these agricultural lands, how can we increase carbon sequestration and reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, to try to mitigate climate change and to also provide other benefits like soil health. Um, and what we found over these three years um, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions is that on the woodland land use of these agroforestry systems, um, the woodland uh, emitted less nitrous oxide emissions, uh, 89% less uh, on average over wow. these three years as compared to the neighboring cropland. Interesting. Or the neighboring, like, annually crop field, essentially. Wow. So that's not too surprising, and I'm sure it doesn't surprise um, others or farmers too much because, you know, we know that adding adding the fertilizer to the annually cropped land is is mostly what's emitting those, uh, mostly where those nitrous oxide emissions are coming from, um, as, you know, the the microbes in the soil work on that and release that nitrous oxide. So that that wasn't too surprising, uh, but it it is a big difference. And so that woodland can definitely uh, mitigate greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural activities. Interesting. Okay. And and I understand the benefit of, you know, planting live trees and, you know, how that can help take carbon out of the atmosphere and, of course, uh, store it into, you know, the, the tree itself. When it comes to deadfall, though, how, how does that work? Yeah, well, I mean, in, in some respects, it's it's still the same, right? A lot of that carbon in those living trees is actually in that wood. Um, so a lot of that wood is still retained in, in the dead trees. So whether they're standing or have fallen, um, most of or a lot of that carbon is still retained. Um, and then as that carbon in the dead wood starts to decompose, um, you know, some of it is being released to the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, um, but some of it is also being um, moved underground into the soil. And that, that deadwood is actually supporting a lot of microbial communities. So 
um, fungi and other microbes, and that's actually allowing this transference of the carbon um, from the wood into the soil. And it has, it can provide other benefits too, um, including biodiversity, not just of microbes, but of um, other uh, fauna as well. So we have um, a lot of benefits of this deadwood that is kind of known in, in forests. We we often look at deadwood in forests, but it hasn't been looked at in these in these woodlands, these agroforestry um, systems. So this was uh, pretty cool to see that um, deadwood is there and it is playing, uh, from what we could see, a similar beneficial role as it plays in forests. So it stores a lot of carbon and it's affecting carbon cycling. Um, and the health of the soil. Yeah, fascinating. I, I should remind everyone, I'm chatting with Dr. Cole Gross this afternoon. Dr. Gross is a postdoctoral researcher now at Yale University School of the Environment. Uh, did his under, excuse me, did his doctoral research out of the University of Alberta, focusing on trees, uh, both live and the deadwood, as Dr. Gross was just alluding to. Um, now, the deadwood itself, Dr. Gross, is that how um, these treed areas in, uh, you know, agricultural areas, these trees, these clumps of trees, or rows of trees is the is it the deadwood that's contributing to the soil health aspect of your studies research um no i would say that it's it's the land use as a whole I that's um, contributing to that soil health um one of the things because this was more observational we can't directly tie um you know some of the um relationships between soil and and the dead trees uh, we can't directly say one is the cause of the other. We need uh, more research to show that. But we did find some some very interesting relationships that are reminiscent of what we already know about this deadwood, which is essentially that it does help with um, promoting biodiversity. But as a whole, it's it's that woodland land use that's that's really um, making that soil more healthy. Um, there's less disturbance when it's just been left as a, as a woodland. Um, and over time, there's just a lot more carbon inputs into that soil. So the carbon just accrues over time. Um, but the, the, the woodlands with more dead wood were the more natural woodlands. So not the um, planted ones, but the ones that where the trees were just naturally allowed to, to grow in that naturally occurring vegetation. So that was kind of a, a difference between these planted woodlands and the woodlands that um, have been, in most cases, retained over time, kind of at road field margins or at field field margins. I see. Okay. I just received a text message, doctor. I'm asking about, you know, the the risk reward uh, with ris the, you know, risk being if, you know, lightning was to strike and you have the dead wood, it may become fuel, um, you know, for a possible fire. But I I'm just not sure the math with respect to the risk reward there. Is it is it more reward? Like there's less of a risk of lightning actually hitting some of these woodlands versus the reward of the, you know, the soil health and the carbon sequestration? I think that that's an excellent question. Um, and, you know, we didn't do the research on that. And, and given that this is kind of the first time that deadwood has been looked at in yeah. these um, agroforestry systems with the woodlands uh, being uh, next to the annually crop field, um, I don't think that that direct answer is out there. So, you know, you would kind of have to refer to um, as much as we can where that's looked at in, in urban forests. 
Um, so I would say that that would kind of go more to, to the landowner themselves. And in yeah. this case, we're saying, you know, let the deadwood lie, assuming, you know, it's not interrupting, it's not causing a hazard. It's not interrupting their safe practices of um, their, their agricultural practices and um, safety in terms of a fire hazard. So I think that, you know, at this time, I would certainly, um, you know, say that, it would be the, the farmer's decision and the landowner's decision sure. there as to whether they think that there is some hazard there because I think they're in a much better position to, to make that assessment and then, of course, remove it if, if they determine it is a safety hazard. Yeah, very good. And, and Dr. Gross, just curious here. This is off the top of my head, to be honest with you. It's, does it make sense then to start planting more trees along borders? You know, like I'm thinking borders uh, along possible, you know, roadway borders of, you know, to kind of give, uh, add more trees to the agroforest areas, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yes. And and we, um, my colleagues and I, um, another colleague of mine led, led a study where we actually looked at that specifically within um, Alberta, and, and we did find a lot of opportunities um, to be able to, to plant more trees, exactly as you were saying, at road field margins and at field field margins. But especially these road field margins, there's just ample opportunity to to plant a lot more trees um and it's really not going to affect the 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 yield or the the acreage that's that's under um current cultivation so and and providing that yield and it shouldn't really affect you know regular practices so we think that 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 would be um the way to go is is you know try to keep we're really promoting foremost uh, retain the the woodlands that are already there and then plant more trees where possible especially along these road field margins where it's not uh, interfering with with food security in any way or, or the yield and it's gonna it's going to provide a lot of ecosystem benefits in addition to increasing carbon sequestration very cool thank you dr gross for the conversation this afternoon thank you for this fascinating research thank you Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Have a great evening. You too. All right. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, that's Dr. Cole Gross, postdoctoral researcher, uh, now at Yale University School of the Environment. Uh, before that, he was at the U of A for five years doing his research here on woodlands, on on agroforest woodlanded areas, uh, looking at the carbon sequestration, the benefits there, and also the benefits to soil health.